You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are you? Man, y'all have very good energy today. I don't know if y'all know this about yourselves or not, but I, I, we, I really feel it. It's wonderful. It's good to see you. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy and honor, as always, to get to be with you guys as a little family this morning as we open up God's Word together. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're on this journey uh, to basically unpack a Christian understanding of human embodiment. And, and what we're trying to do, essentially, with this whole series is present something of a, of a long-form argument uh, that is consistent and thoughtful uh, and nuanced, uh, and most importantly, that is biblically faithful to God's design and intention for, thing, for, for these things, for human sexuality and gender uh, and our bodies and all of that, which, which I, I don't know about you, but I find that to be uh, a particularly rare uh, and difficult thing to do these days. Most of the time uh, in our cultural conversation about this stuff, uh, people just sort of want to blurt out assertions of what you're supposed to think or what you're not supposed to think or do or whatever it may be when it comes to these things. And I, we don't really want that for, for our church community. We want you to have a thoughtful uh, and a positive understanding of Scripture's teachings on these things. And so we're basically trying to help develop our Christian worldview from the ground up, so to speak, so that you know what and why behind God's design for the body and gender and human sexuality. And so, so far on our journey, we've talked about how we are in human, uh, embodied human beings, uh, that our bodies were made uh, in particular ways ways, male and female, and that those particular ways are made to be united together in marriage with one another. Uh, And today, we're going to keep moving forward in this argument uh, with the physical expression of that union of embodied human beings. Buckle up. We're going to have the sex talk. That's where we're going this morning, okay? Uh, And so, uh, as we've been doing in this series, we are beginning with the origin story behind all of these ideas. And so, to begin with, we're going to pick up where we've been for the past few weeks in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So, if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that would be absolutely fantastic. And here's here's all I really want to do today. I want to start by helping us see and understand God's vision for sex. Uh, I want to make, and then I want to make a little bit of a turn, so to speak, and talk to married folks for a bit, because as we'll see, this vision, and in many ways, uh, is, is for you. Uh, but it's not one, at least in my experience, uh, that you are often helped to navigate together. Specifically, not often helped to navigate within the church. And I want to do a little course correction on that for us this morning. And so we're going to talk about God's vision for it, and then we're going to zero in a little bit and try to help our married couples in particular when it comes to this idea. But let's jump in. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. And this is what it reads. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Okay, so first, let's make sure that we are all on the same page here before we get too far in. We, we focused a good bit of our energy on these verses last week, and we saw how this was the first wedding ceremony, and we particularly discussed the ideas of holding fast and one flesh. And just let me flesh those out again briefly for us. The Hebrew word for hold fast is the word devak, and it describes an adhesive union, a, a stuck togetherness, an adhere to one another, or what the Bible often describes as a covenant. And the word for one here is the word ikad, and when it's combined with flesh, it means fused together at the deepest level. That these two others have come together in such a way that they have become something unique and new and different. The example that we used last week was to think about salt, sodium chloride, two unique elements that come together to make one new thing, to form one new thing. That's how the Bible describes marriage. Two, no longer separate and individual, but one and new. And then we look forward a little bit to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul sheds more light on this, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, essentially telling us that this union of others, this union of man and woman, is about more than just this union itself. The reason marriage exists is because God wanted to create a living, breathing advertisement for his relationship with his bride, the church. That God made marriage, so to speak, to be a window for the world to see just how Jesus loves his people, how Jesus steps into a covenant relationship with us, how through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus brings together two difference, creator and creation, sinless and sinner, to bring new life to his world. And how it is not a relationship that is based on performance or perception. We are not loved by God because we deserve love or we've earned his love. But it is grace that he has freely chosen to give to each of us. And if nothing we do earns it, then nothing we do loses it either. And marriage is meant to display these realities. But the reason that that matters for us today is that, biblically speaking, marriage and sex are two interconnected ideas. They are two interconnected, if not inseparable, ideas. To say it a little more plainly, according to Genesis 2, sex is the physical expression of the covenant reality. Sex is the physical expression of the covenant reality. This is what is plain to us from verse 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that order is important. They will hold fast. They will devoc. They will covenant themselves to one another. And then they will become one physically. They will become one flesh. Sex was made by God as a way of saying with our bodies, we are one. We are united. All of me, everything about who I am is united to and belongs to all of you. We are one. We are a unit. We are one flesh together. Think about it this way. Uh, the biblical vision for sex is that it's a, a tangible symbol, so to speak, of an intangible reality. It's similar to how we talked about our bodies a few weeks ago. The example we used then was this meal that we take each and every week in our gatherings called communion. 
What communion is for us is a tangible symbol of our intangible relationship with Jesus. It's bread and wine that reflect to us something greater than the sum of their parts. And just like our bodies reflect something greater than the sum of their parts, the image and character of God, so too sex reflects something greater than just the action of pleasure and procreation for two humans. It reflects the covenantal union between those two people, their oneness that God has brought together. And, and on some level, we always know this, right? On some level, we, all, we always and already know this. There is, a, there is an intimacy to sex that is just different than any of the other actions we might do that connect us to other people. It's not the same as a high five or, or dapping someone up or anything like that. It's not even the same as hugging or cuddling, or kissing, even though those things are often involved. There's, there's something that is just fundamentally different about this action, because it is quite literally two bodies becoming one, two others becoming one. And so it connects us in ways that few other things actually have the power to do. In fact, the latest neuroscience research shows that the chemical releases from sex affect the neural pathways in our brains such that it further physiologically attaches us to whatever the stimulus was that released them. So in layman's terms, the more sex you have with your spouse, the more of that adhesive union between the two of you actually grows. Science is literally just thinking the thoughts of God after him here. In fact, studies show that sex between married couples helps with mental, emotional, and physical health. It reduces stress and anxiety and even tension within the relationship. It's a means of bringing unique and deep pleasure and joy to another person. All the while, also being, God's, uh, also being the God-ordained means by which we would fulfill God's first command to be fruitful and multiply. And the point is, is that God made sex to be this beautiful and powerful proclamation and reinforcement of what is already true about the relationship between two people on all other levels. It's a way of, of consummating and reinforcing or renewing our wedding vows to one another, which, which hopefully helps you, helps you at least make a little bit of sense out of why the Bible gives the prohibitions that it does surrounding sex. Because if this is what sex is, how, how powerful it is and what it's meant to do, then it really only makes sense inside of the context of a covenant marriage. But, but more than that, what I hope these initial words on the pages of Scripture help you see is that the Christian sexual ethic is one that is not built from a low or a base view of sex, but rather a gloriously high one. That the Christian ethic is not built on a low view of sex, but a high view of sex. In the garden, the man and woman are one on the deepest levels with the ability, like in verse uh, 25, it says to be naked and unashamed, free and safe. Not one ounce of their sexual relationship causing shame or embarrassment or awkwardness. The vision here is that sex inside a covenant is a distinctly and gloriously good thing. It is a distinctly and gloriously good thing, a God-honoring thing, a righteous thing, a worshipful thing even because of the greater covenant that it reflects. Like, like you see that, right? Like you, you see this. It wasn't like God put the man and the woman together and suddenly looked down like, oh my gosh, gross guys, what are you doing? Like what is happening here? 
No, that's not, not the case at all. The framework is that sex is a wonderful and good gift from God above. And this is actually all over the place in Scripture. The Scripture talks about this consistently. I'll show you just a few. You can take, for instance, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Uh, It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The writer is telling his son to rejoice in his marriage to rejoice in his wife, to enjoy her, for their sexual relationship to be a blessing, an overflowing fountain, fruitful and full of love. But it's not just here in places like the Proverbs. There's actually an entire book of the Bible that is essentially an erotic love poem. It's called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And let me just just read to you a couple of excerpts. This is from chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the husband speaking to his wife. He says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in its tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth the best wine." To put it very mildly, he's checking her out. <laughs> and he is, he is celebrating her, right? Like he is, he is celebrating how beautiful he finds her and how attracted he is towards her. And the wife responds in the next verse. It says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So the husband is just gushing over his bride here, and he's got some ideas for some things he would like to do, and she loves it. She loves it. She loves how much he wants her. His desire is for me. Old Testament scholar Tripper Longman on these verses says, the role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. Take, for instance, what she says in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are like lilies, dripping myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. And y'all, I'm, I am not going to make a lot of jokes in this sermon, but let me just grant me this one. Uh, ladies, if you want to compliment your man, this is the line, okay? Like, this is, this is the one. There is not a husband in here who, for whom his wife says, hey, babe, your arms are like rods of gold. Who's not going to be like, mm, you want to see what they can do? Well, let's go, you know? Like, I, I, I promise you. Nonetheless, he says, his arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. 
His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Again, Longman notes on verse 14 where it says his body or his abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk. He says, most English translations hesitate at this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, ashamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. And I'm willing to bet that that makes a good number of us in here a bit uncomfortable, right? To see that these are the words of Scripture. And look, I don't take us there just for the shock value of the whole thing. But rather, what I want you to see, or rather it's to help you see that the vision of Scripture is shockingly positive. The Bible has a shockingly positive vision for sex between a husband and a wife. It presents it as a wonderfully good gift from God, a gift to be enjoyed and practiced and protected inside of a marriage. Now, can it be complicated? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Can it be misused and abused? 100%. The best way I've ever heard it put is to, is to say that sex is a bit like fire. Fire is wonderful and powerful and good. It gives light and warmth and it enables you to cook steak. But without the right constraints, it can be dangerous and deadly. And this is why the Bible is so strong in what it says regarding sexual sin. But none of that makes it not good. Sex in and of itself is designed to be nothing but absolutely, totally, and completely good inside of marriage. To be celebrated and enjoyed delightfully by a husband and a wife. And the reason that I'm harping on this right here is because if our view of sex is something other than this, then it is worthy of further examination by us. Because biblically, that's not how God describes it. I was raised in a tradition where, in a well-intentioned effort to help people avoid sexual sin, the message either intentionally or unintentionally became, look, sex is evil and gross, so save it for your spouse, right? I mean, and just, just imagine what that kind of message does to a room full of hormone-enraged teenagers, the shame and confusion. And then think about what happens when those teenagers carry that mentality into marriages of their own one day. Maybe some of us don't have, have to try too hard to imagine that because maybe for some of us, we're living in it. Maybe for you, your entire perspective on sex was shaped by the negative things that scripture has to say about it at the expense of the positive. And now when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, you, you kind of can't think about it any other way. So sex feels burdensome and awkward and not a source of joy, but something more like a necessary evil for the two of you. Similarly, maybe your view of sex or your perspective on sex has been shaped because of sexual sin itself. Sins committed by you or maybe sins perpetrated against you that can affect, that can radically shape or have radically shaped how you think and feel about it how you relate to your spouse within it. 
And even how do you relate to yourself and with God in the midst of it? And you find it impossible to think of it as good because for you, it's only been bad and a source of pain. And so let me say a few things here. If that's you, first, I just want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, if the statistics are to be believed, there is hardly a soul in here who hasn't been impacted in some way, shape, or form by sexual sin. Personal or otherwise, sexual sin has impacted all of us. And for the record, that includes me. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to stand up here before you as somebody who wants to pretend like they've been unscathed by these things in his own life. No, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the rest. But two, I want you to know that Jesus bled and died for the sexual sinner as well as the one who has been sexually sinned against. Your, your porn habit, your adultery, your disregard for the sacredness of sex by sleeping around, all of those sins have been nailed to and paid for by the cross of Christ. And if you are in Christ, when you trust in Jesus' atoning work for you, your sin and guilt get removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And likewise, the blood of Christ washes you and cleanses you of all the shame of sins that you have done and the sins that have been done to you, such that your identity now is not in what you've done or what's been done to you, but in what Jesus has done for you. And his offer for you, if you find yourself there, his offer for you is to find freedom and healing from shame in him to give you a new identity such that the truest true thing about you wouldn't be what somebody has done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. But thirdly, none of that changes what God intends for sex. And if you're married, none of that changes what God intends and wants for your relationship with your spouse and sex. And so what I want to do with the second half of our time here is just to, to help us with that a bit. Because it is, it is one thing for us to understand that sex is healthy and good and God-honoring. But it is a whole other thing for us to navigate that faithfully and fruitfully. And the good news is that the Bible has not left us on our own here either. So let's flip over to the New Testament and let's look at a passage in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing here to help the Corinthian church follow Jesus with their sex lives because the Corinthian church is, amongst other things, pretty wild. And this is where he picks up in verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so there's a good bit to note here, but first, the first thing I want you to see is the importance that Paul places on sex within marriage. Paul makes it pretty plain. 
The wife and husband have rights over each other's bodies. And that might strike you as odd and really possessive sounding, but that's really just your 21st century ears hearing this. For one, he's radically lifting up the wife in this particular society, giving her equal authority and rights to the man. Like, this is radically progressive, to be quite honest with you, for, for, the, for this uh, time period. But two, he's also just refer, uh, reaffirming what we've already seen from Genesis 2 and the Song of Solomon and Jesus and the rest of Scripture, that, that marriage is a covenant where we are no longer independent, but belong to one another. So he uses this language of obligation because in the covenant, I have promised to give myself to you, to give all of myself to you for all time. And to fail to live that out with my body is actually fraudulent. I would not be fulfilling the promise. It is a sin of omission, so to speak. But notice why he says it matters in the latter, latter part of verse 5. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. To say this a little bit differently, an unhealthy sex life, or rather a sex life where sexual deprivation is the norm, opens up the door for the devil. That's what Paul's saying. Is it opens up the door for the devil. The Corinthians tended to view sex as an appetite like any other. So if you're hungry, go to the grocery store. If you're hungry for sex, go to the prostitute. And Paul very specifically has that temptation in mind. And one of the protections, he says, against sexual sin is healthy, regular sex between a husband and a wife. But the temptations from an unhealthy sex life go far beyond just wandering eyes or adultery or porn. The truth is, is that the lack of a healthy sexual relationship in marriage can lead to all kinds of temptation. It can lead to temptations of resentment or anger or rage. It can lead to the temptation of, of discontentment and jealousy of others. If nothing else, it can lead to just these generalized feelings of disconnection and lost love with your covenant partner. And Scripture's point here is that Scripture is meant to be a protection or even a medicine for those things, in part because this is how God made it to work, as an action that unites and attaches us to one another. To say it more simply, healthy sex in marriage promotes a healthy marriage. Healthy sex in marriage promotes a healthy marriage. And if you're married, that is an absolutely crucial insight for you to have. Like, if you want to have a healthy marriage, then, then outside of extreme circumstances, healthy sex will need to play a part. But this is where it gets a little messy, right? Because how do we get there? Let's keep looking at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, let's chat here for a moment, because there, there's an insight here that you will miss if you move on too quickly. First, he indicates that there will be periods of time where you don't have sex, particularly times to pray. And the point is, is that he's not, he's not saying a, he a healthy sex life is as much sex as humanly possible. That's not, that's not what he's saying in these passages, right? And I don't know if anyone in the room needs to hear that, but let it be said. But you will also note, notice the term limited time here is not an objective measure. He doesn't, he doesn't give them an objective like a few days or a week or a month, just this indiscriminate limited, limited time. Point being, it's subjective or relative. And, and that matters because what you think is a limited time might not be what I think is a limited time. And likewise, what you think is a limited time might also not be what your spouse thinks is a limited time. And, and, and enter the difficulty, right? Like enter the mess of all of this. One, often one of, if not the, even the leading complicating factor 
for frustration and difficulty with, with sex and marriage is that when it comes to our sexual desires and appetites, you and your spouse are often different. Different. You have different histories, different perspectives, different upbringings and feelings and fears and desires. Usually, not always, but usually, for men, sexual pleasure is pretty simple and straightforward. For women, however, statistically speaking, it's often more complicated. It takes some figuring out and some investigation and some learning. Men and women are different. We're different. And generally speaking, too, in every marriage, you're going to have one person with a higher drive and one person with a lower drive. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that means that one, one person doesn't want sex in the marriage. It's just that when it comes to the relationship, almost always someone is going to have a higher drive than the other. It could be that both of you have really high drives or both have fairly low drives, but it would still remain that one is probably higher than the other. And within this dynamic, it's actually the lower libidoed spouse who controls that couple's sex life because they are, in a sense, the gatekeeper. And that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. Don't mishear what I'm saying. It's just something. It's just a thing that you need to know. But the point is, is that in almost every relationship, there can be a gap, okay? There can be a gap between the husband and the wife, a gap in what one spouse wants, likes, and needs, and the other. And so what do we do with that? How do we navigate that according to scripture? Well, if you look back, he says any amount of abstinence should take place by agreement for a limited time. And an agreement between two people requires something, something absolutely essential. It requires communication. The, the potentially overlooked insight here is that a healthy sex life in marriage necessitates healthy communication. I'm going to say that one more time. A healthy sex life in marriage necessitates healthy communication. The idea here is that in marriage, couples are to be on the same page when it comes to sex. Husbands and wives who understand their oneness, it's, it's design and reflection of Jesus and the church who do not deprive each other except when they agree to for some spiritual or discipleship purpose, who are synced up united, not just in body, but in purpose, who are headed spiritually, emotionally, and sexually in the same direction together. And the only way that that kind of synchronization can happen is if we talk, is if we talk to one another. And listen, I hear myself saying that, okay? So I, so I know how utterly simple that sounds. And what I'm about to say quite possibly does not apply to you and your spouse. But from my seat on the bus, I think it applies to most married couples. Most married couples do not have healthy, good, direct, and productive communication when it comes to sex and their relationship. And maybe that's not you. Like maybe you and your spouse have a set, set aside time every week where you like sit down and hash it out with charts and schematics, all right? Like maybe, maybe that's y'all, but I'm willing, I'm willing to bet it's not, okay? Most married couples in my experience don't do that sort of thing. And what's true of all married couples, like we said before, is we all have these gaps in, uh, in our desires and expectations that will need to be bridged. And every married couple will have some level of issue or problem or concern at some point in their sexual relationship. Big or small, it doesn't matter. Uh, issues are inevitable in a lifelong sexual relationship. And the only way to work through those things, whatever they are, is to have good, clear, helpful, and productive communication between the two of you. 
Like you'll need, and you'll need more than that to be sure, but you cannot have less than that. Good productive communication is a mandatory minimum for your sex life. And my experience is that a lot of married couples aren't great at communicating about sex. In fact, my experience is that most of us aren't great at communicating, period, but that is especially true when it comes to sex. And it tends to be that any and all other communication weaknesses get brought into this arena and amplified for a lot of us. And there's probably a lot of reasons for this. It's very sensitive and personal. There can be a lot of insecurity and, with, and expressing thoughts and emotions with clarity is, is often a tall order. It can be difficult to communicate a desire for change without it sounding like a critique of your spouse. Some of us have histories and pains surrounding sex that make things complicated and difficult. There are things that we leave unsaid or there are arguments or both that we have. And listen, all of that is understandable. But if you were going to step into and embrace God's vision and design for sex, for the health, survival, and enjoyment of your marriage, you are going to have to navigate this. You're going to have to navigate this together. Because here's the thing. No matter what, the gap, the gap between you is going to get bridged one way or another. Okay? And you need to know that. One way or the other, the gap is going to be bridged. You are going to have a physical relationship, a sexual relationship of some sort. Even if it's the absence of physical intimacy, then your physical relationship is one where physical intimacy is absent. So for example, if a person gets married and they would say that they have the desire to, to flirt a lot and to have sex every day and touch a lot or whatever, and they marry someone who is not at all like that, they marry someone who would like to hold hands on their anniversary and have sex on your birthday but not theirs, you have a huge gap. That's a, big, that's a big gap that has to be bridged. And, and one or both of you is going to bridge it, okay? If that couple has sex every day, then the lower libido spouse has done all the work to bridge that gap. But if the lower libido spouse says, hey, I'm not willing to bridge that gap, we'll have sex on your birthday and only once then, so don't get any ideas, well, then, then the higher libido person, right, is doing all the work to bridge that gap. Either way, the gap is going to be bridged. Either, either one of you or both of you will move towards the other. It's going to happen. And if you don't have language for this or an awareness of this dynamic at play, or if you're not willing to move very much, then that means you are forcing your spouse to move a lot, which by definition is not fair and does not qualify as the sort of agreement that Paul calls us to in this passage. And it creates all sorts of potential for bitterness, resentment, and frustration which is exactly what Paul says will happen. Without good communication leading to a mutually pleasing sex life, you are open to temptation. And it doesn't necessarily mean your response will be sinful, but it does increase the likelihood of it, which is not desirable, right? Which is not what God intends for us. If for no other reason than your marriage is supposed to show off the relationship that Jesus wants with us, which is not one of bitterness and resentment and frustration, but is instead one of closeness, warmth, and joy. And what I want you to see is that effective communication is the way to get there. We've got to open up the doors for us to talk about this with one another. I think honest and direct communication could potentially solve hundreds of problems in your marriage before they even happen. And what I hope we see here is that God wants us to step into this good gift for us. But in order to do that, we have to step into it. 
We've got to take the time to talk with our spouses, to get on the same page. His vision for us is oneness, physically and otherwise. And that means we've got to come together and be on the same page when it comes to these things in our relationships. And so if you're married here, here's what I want to encourage you to do real practically this week. I just want you to talk. I want you to talk. To schedule a time and sit down and talk about these things together. In fact, to help you, we've created a little guide uh, to kind of assist us with, with this. If that's something that you need or would be helpful, if you don't know where to start this conversation with your spouse, like we want to kind of make it easy for you. And so you can go to the website on our sermon series page uh, and find, find a link to a guide. But, but don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not saying that one conversation is going to be the silver bullet for everything that your uh, relationship is facing, okay? That's not it. But what I am saying is that it is at least the first step in the right direction for us to embrace God's vision holistically together. This is where it begins. It can start to bring intentionality and oneness towards your sexual relationship that may be lacking. And I know for many of us, these conversations will include hard things, histories and pain, things that maybe have even gone unsaid for far too long, even things that may lead both of you to the conclusion that sex can't be as frequent as maybe you, as you or your spouse want it to be. And if that's you, just hear me. That's okay. That may, need, that may need to be the agreement for a time. But the point is, is that it's an agreement, a mutual understanding that the two of you have together. And I would encourage you to allow that to become a prompt for the other part of Paul's words here, to devote yourself to prayer, to go to God and to cling to him in this area of your life to ask him to help you and heal you with the truth of his gospel, the truth of his grace, to ask him to heal and help your sexual relationship for your good and God's glory, to not let it be a thing that you and your spouse just sort of ignore or let fester or cause conflict and pain between the two of you, but something that pushes you towards the loving and sufficiently strong arms of Jesus to carry you through and make the two of you even something new. Because his vision and desire for you is good. And we wanna be a people and a place that upholds and practices the beauty and wonder and goodness of God's design for sex. And single folks, listen, I know I haven't spoken to you much in the sermon and please, please forgive me for that. Hopefully you understand why. We're gonna talk more in the coming weeks uh, about what to do with desire, including desires for sex and marriage that we don't have. But it's at least worth saying here at the end that for you, as well as the rest of us, part of the, part of the way we honor this and hold it up will mean turning away from false ideas and destructive visions of sex in our lives, leaving behind sexual sin for the glory of the one who is greater, who has made sex in, in, in marriage to be something greater, something that ultimately points us to the beauty, wonder, and goodness of God, the life, the life-giving, self-sacrificing, intimately adoring love that the great bridegroom Jesus has for his bride, the church. And so we land real simply. May, may our sex lives bring honor and glory to him. That's our aim. That's where we want to go. That's what he has for us. Let's pray.